Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. I don't know where they get that stuff. They expect me to keep you awake following that. Two or three things I need to tell you before we jump into studying the Lord's Supper. Um, just this past week, um, we helped Patrick and Eddie get a vehicle. And I thought you would be kind of interested in the, It's a used vehicle that they have purchased there in, um, in Uganda. And I think we've got pictures of what they got. There it is. It isn't bad. That cost about $15,000 U.S. money. And it's paid for, and the steering wheel's on the wrong side because that's the way they drive on the wrong side of the road and so on. And I talked to, and so Eddie said he would be listening this morning. So, hi, Eddie. Uh, I let him know that. And, but anyway, I thought that you needed to know as, as we continue to do things there, try to keep you fully informed. One of the other things that we want to do over a period of time is that we will be wanting everybody who attends here to have a copy of this booklet called First Steps. We want everybody to, to and it's a part of the program that we're wanting to do to get everybody on the same page of becoming disciples and not just pew sitters. And we want you to, it will be your, to take home, put your name in it, take home with you. The really good way to do it is to have one copy and husbands and wives work together. One of them take an open Bible and the other that can read and write, uh, write the answers in. When we finish this one, we'll do the same thing with another booklet that will come out. And then everybody from then on, from then on, that is baptized, that comes into the church, will be, they will agree ahead of time to take the class the two classes really one of them will and and so these booklets will be we bought these the rights to them years ago and so they're available and i often give them to people who are baptized but matthew wants everybody here to have worked it out because that way when you finish both of them you will be fully equipped to lead someone to christ you can even use it if you need to to refer to because the woods are full of people now who are skeptical and and uh, and the day is over when well it should be over when people just go to church and uh, get a, a warm fuzzy feeling and go home because uh, the young people will not put up with that anymore they want to know what they believe and why they believe it and so and, and, and a disciple, because uh, Jesus said to us, he, he didn't say just uh, to see how many people you can get to warm the seats. He said, I want you to, go, and this was a command, go and make disciples. It was, and that's, a, that's an, uh, an ordinance of the church. So we'll be making those available probably next week to anyone who doesn't already have them. Um, and these are the fundamentals of the faith that has to do with who is God and who is Jesus and what is a Christian and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Very fundamental. 
The other thing, the, I want you to pay attention to your outline today because we'll follow that pretty closely. We're talking about the Lord's Supper. And I think you may be surprised before we finish to learn that uh, at one time, for many, many years, the Lord's Supper was the primary reason Christians assembled on the first day of the week. It was the primary reason. And, and we'll be able to show you from the scripture why this is true. The, um, the background, and I have to take some time to do two things today. We have to talk about the Old Testament background. And if you don't know something about that background, you won't understand these passages in the New Testament in reference to the Lord's Supper. Two, we have to do a little bit of church history stuff, especially uh, about 1200 A.D. And then, uh, and then at the Reformation time, uh, starting at 1456 and going through 1517. And uh, it, that won't be difficult and it, and it won't, be, won't take a lot of time, but it is essential to understand what's going on today. Otherwise, you will not know why things happen today the way they happen. Let's look, first of all, at, uh, at the Old Testament background that ultimately, because Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper in Jerusalem with his 12, he did it at a Passover meal. So we have to go back to the Passover meal as it was originally instituted to Moses and then to the children of Israel in the Old, in the, uh, in the Old Testament era. And we're especially, we'll be looking at the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus. First of all, understand that the Passover meal was one that the, Israeli, that the people of Israel were told, I want you to kill a lamb. I want you to take the blood from the lamb and put on the doorpost and the lentils of your house. That's, it. That's absolutely essential for you to survive. You will do that, and you will eat. You will roast the lamb, and you will eat it standing up. Now, the reason they said it, because as soon as this is over, you will leave and head for the promised land. So I want you to eat it standing up. Now, you, if you ever go back over to the Old Testament in Exodus and read it, you'll see what I'm telling you is accurate. There's just a couple of things I want to make reference to as we go. This Passover lamb was called the Paschal lamb. And, and that's written out for you there on, on number two under the background and terminology. And you have to learn some of this to understand what happened to Jesus in the New Testament. The, the Passover meal, there it wasn't anything magic about it. It was a simple meal to be eaten while they stood up. And it was something that was to become an annual memorial. Every year, at exactly the same day, they were to kill a lamb and to celebrate the fact that God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to freedom in Israel. And so they would not forget. The next generation would understand. Every year, every year, they would do 
celebrate that meal. Actually, in one of the times that I was there, we got to kind of, in Israel, I got to kind of uh, go through the motions of how that was done. The important thing to remind to, to, for you to, and I would circle this if you have a pen or pencil, it's the word memorial. It is a simple memorial, lest they forget. The lamb that, was, that they slaughtered, and if they didn't have a lamb, they could actually substitute a goat, but they really wanted them to use a lamb. It was, it was called the Paschal Lamb. So here are the two passages of Scripture that I want to read for you. Here in the 12th chapter in verses 13 and 14. Here's what it says. The blood will be a sign for you on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will what? Pass over you. So the word there, Passover meal, came as a result of the fact that if the angel, the death angel that came, if they saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over that home and there would be no death there. So that term, Passover, had to do with God bringing judgment upon Israel and, uh, and um, rather upon Egypt and upon any in Israel who didn't put the blood on the doorpost. Blood became an absolute essential in understanding what God was doing because we're told later that the Really, the life is in the blood anyway. Then it goes on to say, in verse 14, This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. It's a lasting ordinance, meaning it's a law. It's not debatable. God is saying, this you do. Now, so that, that, that's the background and that, that, that you have because Jesus is going to, before he died, when he had come to Jerusalem, he comes there and he says to his 12, I desire to eat the Passover with you one more time before the cross. And so they go to a place in an upper room. And if you go to Israel today, there's a symbolic room there on the second floor of a building <clears throat> that's called the upper room where large groups often have communion together. And the word paschal, the, or the lamb there, do you remember when Jesus was baptized? He actually had a cousin by the name of John. And John was a preacher, a tough hombre, and he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, probably pretty close to the place where Israel crossed it to come from Jor across the Jordan into the, the plains of Jericho as they came into the country. So the people of Israel, were they were used to memorials. They were... Even today, the Jews celebrate a lot of uh, holidays, and they know how to party. I'll be honest with you. I've been to some of them, and uh, I, I'm not certain they always remember what they did the next day because they kind of get plowed, but, uh, and I mean really hammered. So when the, when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, and the, there was a dam upstream, and the timing was the miracle, the water stopped, and, and Moses said, okay, or, or Joshua said, because Moses is already dead up on, and buried up on Mount Nebo somewhere. And he said, now, Josh, you tell the people, and especially the priest, 
when they go out in the middle of the Jordan, they're to pick up stones and carry and put them in a pile on the other side. Why would you do that? He said, when the children pass by, and it's on a major highway, when they pass by here and they see that pile of rock, they'll say, what's that pile of rock? You're to use that to remind the children that God had delivered them out of bondage in Egypt and, and, and safely across the Jordan River to possess the land that flowed with milk and honey. That was Israel. Now, in that same area where they crossed, John the Baptist was baptizing people. And Jesus chose to come to him to be baptized. Now, they said, well, the question was, why was Jesus baptized? He, he, he wasn't a sinner. And Jesus said, it's, it's as an example for you to follow. I didn't need to be baptized. And even John said, hey, I'm not going to baptize you because you should baptize me. And he said, no, I want this to happen because it's the will of God to show people that they need to be baptized and why. And so when John saw Jesus coming at a distance, and he already knew him because they were, they were closely related cousins. When he saw Jesus coming, John said what? Hey, look, or King James would say, behold, hey, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How is that to happen? Because Jesus is going to go what? Shed his blood. And with the shedding of blood, he paid, God said, this is sufficient payment for the sins of anybody who will put their faith in Jesus. So you, when we stand before God as sinners, we're there as Sinners who have had the penalty for our sins already paid for. Jesus did that on the cross. And we wouldn't have the resources to pay for it anyway, so it had to be that way. Now, with that little background, Jesus is, is meeting with his disciples, and he's going to institute the Lord's Supper. With the and the twelve is still there because Judas hasn't gone and made his deal with the devil yet. Now, this Lord's Supper... That uh, the seller, and, and I need to mention this out of common sense. Christianity, and probably most religions, but certainly Christianity, is always in conflict with our culture. And it always will be. This isn't anything new. Our culture, in Kentucky, where we have things right, we always said, when you're on the farm, we always said, you have breakfast, you have dinner, and you have supper. Now, that's kind of easy to remember. But the stupid people in our culture said, oh, no. You know, this kind of people, you know, with their nose in the air said, oh, no. We will have breakfast and we will have lunch and we'll have dinner. The Lord didn't institute the Lord's dinner. He instituted the Lord's supper. And so we had it right all the time. And so you need to keep that straight in your mind. But our culture is trying to write off the Christian influence in our culture. And it's really pretty strong today. I, I'm shocked, to be honest with you, at the degree to which Marxism has had its influence in our culture in the last uh, probably 50 years. But it, it was, they stayed in the weeds for a long time, but all of a sudden they've gotten the, the bravado to come out into the open and, and just say, hey, we think this is a better way to go. And it's being very divisive. And the reason I rant and rave about it is because 
it's for those of you, and 90% of you, 99% of you have never read the Communist Manifesto. But if you'll read it, you'll see that it is a stated enemy of the church. I mean, you don't have to guess. It's there in black and white. It's a stated enemy of the church. And therefore, I think I have every right, even the responsibility, to say that this type of stuff that is anti-religion and anti-Christian in particular needs to be addressed and people need to be warned about it. And, 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 and I would encourage you, I don't care whether you're Republican, Democrat, or Independent, check out what the people really believe before you vote for them. Even locally, see what they believe. Take the time to investigate. This, it's silly anymore just to vote a straight line Republican, Democrat, or independent thing. Find out because there are bad guys in all of them, and you need to take the time to investigate because they're there to put us out of business. And they're getting strong enough that the heat will probably come upon us. Just be warned. I think that's my responsibility. And I try to do it in such a way that it, it doesn't sound political because it isn't meant to be. It's, it's, it falls into the category in the New Testament of being anti-Christ. And anything that's anti-Christ, we're to address. Even though it, it may make some folks uncomfortable, so be it. Now let's go ahead from there and look at the essential objectives of the Lord's Supper. You need to understand that in the New Testament era, in the New Testament era, the primary reason people gathered on the first day of the week was to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It wasn't to hear a preacher, believe it or not, because they seldom had it. And if they didn't have a preacher, as, as Paul addressed Timothy in the book of Timothy, he said, you, you continue to read the scriptures for the people because most of them couldn't read and write. Why? Because many of the converts in, in the Gentile world were slaves who had come to Christ. They had an Old Testament background. They had to learn all that. They were going from get, the get-go. They knew nothing except they were, ask, they were asking for the, you to accept Christ and have the forgiveness of sins and the guarantee of eternal life. And so they knew nothing about that. They, and the slaves couldn't read and write. And so they would come together in a carrion supper and after the carrion supper, at the end of it, they would take the wine and the bread and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Acts 2.42, there, there are two or three scriptures that will affirm what I'm telling you about why they primarily gathered on the first day of the week. Now, even the first day of the week is different than the now. If you recall... The Sabbath of the, Judy, of the Jews begins at 6 o'clock or at sundown on Friday evening. The Sabbath is over at sundown, or usually just estimated at 6 o'clock, on, 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 on Saturday night. So it goes from Friday night at 6, sundown on Friday night, to sundown um, on Saturday. That's, what, that's our Sabbath. And the word Sabbath simply means seventh. It's the seventh day. And so the first day of the week, what we call Sunday, and it was named after the sun, 
part of the pagan religious stuff that affected the, the naming of the days of the week. Sunday then began at sundown on what we call Saturday and ran to sundown on what we call Sunday. And, and you'll find that, that many of them began like our Saturday evening service after sundown. And there are passages of Scripture that say, that, that in, helps us understand why it was celebrated as the primary reason for them gathering. See, there are only two real ordinances of the church. One's baptism, one's the Lord's Supper. An ordinance means it is the law of the kingdom of God that must be obeyed. So it's an ordinance of the church. And each one of them testify to the gospel just by doing it. When you're, when you're baptized, it's the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And we'll see in a minute when we read scripture that the Lord's Supper testifies to exactly the same thing. And even though they couldn't read and write, by their actions, they preached the gospel. Testified to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So Jesus was saying, look, this is an ordinance, and I expect you to obey it. Because obedience is the way that you tell whether somebody loves the Lord or don't. When you look carefully at the Gospel of John, that uh, 14th chapter in particular, at, uh, starting at verse 23, I think, Here's what he says. Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. I could go on and read as he affirms that. So what he's really saying is this is a law of the kingdom of God that testifies to whether you love God or don't. And the early church, just listen to this, because it's not an exaggeration. The early church would walk across hell on a rotten rail to get to a communion service on the Lord's Day. It was the primary reason why they got together. Now, that all changed in the history of the church, and we'll get to that in just a moment. It was in... Uh, and there's some really things that are associated with it that kind of turn people off. In about 1215 or so A.D., the church implemented a teaching that really is offensive. It's called transubstantiation. that says that in the ritual of the Mass, the bread actually turns into the body, the physical flesh of Christ. And then during that, the, the wine actually turns into the literal blood of Christ affirming his presence among you. That's a tragic thing that happened. And it, be, and it, was only, it took 1,200 years for them to get around to that. But that is still the practice in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Orthodox churches around the world. Now, that's called transubstantiation. Sub meaning trans means change over. Substantiation means of the substance. So the substance of the bread and the substance of the wine are changed over from wine and bread 
to the body of Christ. And that's the official position as of the fourth Lateran conference of the church in Rome. Now, follow the next the next thing that happened historically, and we're talking about church history now and what, how it affects the Lord's Supper. The next substantial thing that happened was in 1456. In 1456, movable type was invented. A guy named Gutenberg, it's called the Gutenberg Press, invented movable type, which made it possible then to print the Bible in mass. Gutenberg was a German. And so those, those Bibles began to be printed in, in great numbers. And the German people started reading the Bible. They never had one before. They just kept one at, the, at their church building. And when they started reading the Bible, they said, Hey, some of the things we're doing here are not what the Bible teaches. And we need to change that. The two people that you would recognize the most probably would be John Calvin, who was in Geneva. He was a Frenchman that had moved to Geneva to protect his studies as a lawyer, then became a theologian. The other was Martin Luther, who also studied as a lawyer and became a theologian. They were, they were Augustinian monks, and then ultimately they left the priesthood and, and uh, got married and had families and so on and so forth. But they, they objected to uh, the, the existence of the papacy, which is not in the Bible, they objected to the teaching that there had to be a place between earth and heaven where people would go and be purged of their sin so they would be qualified to go to heaven. That's called purgatory. That has to go because it's not in the Bible. Anyway, they were going through and saying, we need to reform the church. They said, Calvin never wanted the, uh, the reformed church to exist. But like... Evangelical Reformed Church down that that's from Calvin. The Presbyterian Church came from Calvin too, but John Knox left Scotland, went to Geneva, studied under Calvin, came back to Scotland, and started the Presbyterian Church. When I first came to town here, we had three Presbyterian churches that were functioning. Central Press up on the hill, Second Press where all the rich people went, and First Press, which was the older church. And so uh, that's supposed to be a little humor there if you caught on to it. But anyhow, the, the, the Reformed Church and the Presbyterian Church all believe exactly the same thing because it all came from John Calvin. Luther didn't want to have a Lutheran church. He didn't want that. He wanted to reform the existing church because there's only one church. He didn't want that to happen. But the people overrode him and, and uh, went ahead and did it anyway. Now, and so at that particular time, some interesting things. Now we're talking about when the Bible was printed and starting at the Gutenberg Press in 1456, then in 1517, Luther nailed nine, the 95 subjects or theses on the church door at Wittenberg in Germany to discuss with the papacy. And one, and one of those had to do with communion, purgatory, so on. But there were 95 of them all together. Now, at that particular time, the church still gathered every Sunday primarily for the Mass or the Lord's Supper, all the same thing, okay? That's why they got together. Sometimes there would be preaching, sometimes there wouldn't. 
They call it a homily. We call it a sermon. Same, same thing. And so there was such bitterness between those who wanted to reform the church and the papacy and the, that existed as the head of the church that actually war broke out in places. The Pope actually put a hit out on Martin Luther. They wanted to kill him. So it became so bitter that the reformers did some things that were reactionary and not biblical. What, I, what we're trying to do through this particular series that we're preaching is to help you get past all of this and just back to the Bible. The group that Patrick and Eddie work with in Uganda is called Back to the Bible Truth, BBT. Getting back to the Bible. And so what we want you to do is to be able to cut through all of the baloney that church history has developed and just get back to the Word of God. That's why I try to put book, chapter, and verse beside of everything that, we, that I put out there for you. And if you want to argue about something with me and you don't have book, chapter, and verse, I won't argue with you. I'll just sit and listen to your aunt and rave because it has to be what the only one authority that we have is the Bible. And we have to get back to it and allow it to be the single source because you can't have unity unless there's just a single source of authority. So that's what we're looking at. Now, while I'm taking a, a sip of of a cider here, whatever this is. You all need to know that the flowers up here are for a funeral this evening at 7 o'clock for, for um, uh, a young man that's 38 years old that died. And I want to thank those of you who had volunteered to help us uh, greet the people and see the things go smoothly. So, But Billy Deaver died and uh, too young, and we'll have his funeral here this evening. Now let's look at, when we, at, at, I'll finish up where I started here, then we'll look at these essentials and we'll move quickly from there. What the church did when it divided over those 95 theses and they became so bitter and hatred and people were killed and so on and so forth, the reformers actually reacted to the church even though they said they wanted to get back to the Bible, they didn't make it. Since the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church had communion every week because that's the way it was in the New Testament. Acts 2.42 says what? They continued or steadfastly, this is King James talk, they, they persisted in or continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, that's your New Testament. Koinonia fellowship, that's where we get together in a non-threatening atmosphere and are able to discuss the scripture and to pray for one another and to encourage each other, da-da-da-da-da. I personally like to periodically have testimonies. Used to have that all the time. We quit because there was a problem that arose. A friend of mine named Rod Huron from up that I went to school with that uh, became a pretty good author. He and Jimmy, his brother, grew up up in Chesapeake. And in every town in past years, there have been uh, men and women of, shall we say, notorious sexual uh, activities. You had here in town. Do you remember Four Pound Brown? If you don't, then I don't know where you were. You younger ones wouldn't, but trust me, he was here. He ran a house of prostitution. 
if you went to uh, Ironton, there was a step and a half, and, and the other lady, I forget her name now, you may wonder, how does Scott know all of this? I ain't telling you. <laughs> you don't need to know that. If you, and, and Jimmy, or, or Rod Huron said in their church, they had a lady like that, and she became a Christian. They baptized her, and on Wednesday night at prayer meeting, they would have testimonies. And she'd get up and testify, and the time came when she began recalling names, and they had to cut that down in a hurry. <laughs> so we had the same problem. When we started, we used the Seventh-day Adventist building. We'd have testimonies. They were brief, and... and uh, and some of the information that came forward, uh, we had to stop. Some people didn't like it very well, but it had to, we just had to do it. So the, what the, the Lutherans did and what the Reformers did in the, in the Reformed Church is they said, because the Catholic Church and the, and the, and the Orthodox Church has communion or mass every week, we're not going to do that. We're just going to do it every once in a while, and so some of them would have, some of them would have a, a monthly. The Baptist Church at home in Germantown had it every month. You go there, you listen to the preacher, and he would say, "Okay, at the end of the service, this is our communion week. Anybody that isn't a member of this church is free to go, because they practice what's called closed communion, but they only had it once a month. The New Testament obviously had it every week." That's primarily the reason they got together. They'd have a carry-in meal, end of it, have the Lord's Supper. The result was that many of the churches today, even those who believe the Bible, only have communion periodically. And the reason they do it that way is because they made a silly mistake at the Reformation reacting to the Catholic and the Orthodox Church, rather than just doing what the Bible said. Our commitment is to do the best we can, finding out what the Word of God says, and then doing it. Now, why did you do this? Because, as I said, when, let's look at these objectives now, and because it helps you to understand what goes on in our world today and why we do what we do. In the 11th chapter of the book, and I'm going to read these passages of Scripture, but I'll, I'll get done pretty close to the quitting time because I have to get done before the funeral. That's supposed to have, You guys are either asleep or have no sense of humor at all. I don't know what's wrong with you. Anyway, it, it, what, what we do when we eat, what the Bible says we do when we eat the Lord's Supper is this. Listen to it carefully. This is verse, what, 20, 26 of chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. So what we're doing is we're testifying that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood to pay for our sins every time we eat the Lord's Supper. That's what it's for. We're testifying to the gospel, the good news that our sin problem has been handled. And, and what we do here is the silliness that they tried to do is they tried to affirm the presence of Jesus. Well, that's done by faith. It's done by faith. 
we believe what the Bible says about the presence of Jesus when we gather. When you go over, and, and this is here again, if you go over to the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, in the 18th chapter of Matthew, here's what he says. Whenever we get together, we come together to take the Lord's Supper, to read the Scriptures, to pray together, to encourage each other, so on and so forth. Whenever we come together, we assume that the Lord is here. Now, there's a danger here. Many churches say, well, if I can feel the presence of the Lord, that's as dangerous as a cock gun. Every harebrained mess that the church has ever had to deal with has always prospered through feelings. Even this old song said, every time I feel the Spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. The New Testament, in not one single passage, affirms that you feel the presence of the Spirit. It is something that you believe because the Lord promised it. And when you read the Scriptures, you'll see why this is absolutely true. Um, here in the 18th chapter, verse 20, here's what he says. For where two or three come together in my name... There I am with you. So the presence of the Lord is guaranteed in Scripture when we gather on the Lord's day as the, as the people of God. He's here. Whether you feel him or not, he's here. And you need to know that. That should govern our behavior, our attitude, and everything associated with it. The Lord's Supper also taken as it should be taken, guarantees unity among the believers. And people who take it lightly are, are, are often very divisive. But I'm telling you, it carries with it a serious penalty whenever it's violated. And, and we, we need to know that. When, and and here's, the, here's the deal. Everything in the New Testament has an Old Testament background. And the Old Testament background here is this. This was the practice among the Jews for hundreds of years. They had a, a tabernacle, then they had a temple. And, and the, the Jewish people were required to bring sacrifices to the temple, offer them to the priest, and then the priest would not just take them and automatically do it. He would ask you a question. And the question is, do you have difficulty with anyone in the congregation of Israel? And if they said yes, he would not take their sacrifice. He would rather say, here's what you have to do. You have to go back to that person that you're having difficult with or maybe is having difficult with you and be reconciled. And then after you're reconciled, bring your gift back, make your sacrifice, and I'll offer it. In other words, he was saying the unity of God's people is more important than your sacrifice. And so your sacrifice will not be offered unless you get it fixed. And here's the way, and if you don't, you know, the scripture teaches this with a great deal of clarity. Here in the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew, here's what he says. 
we'll start in verse 23, back up. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. When we had our break here at church back a few years ago, I went to the Rick and I said, Rick, there's a problem here of us taking communion. This thing needs to be settled. We need to kiss and make up. But I was told to take a hike. Verse 25 says, Settle matters quickly with your adversary, or who may end up taking you to court when we don't need to get there. Anyway, the point is this. The New Testament communion had the background of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the principle of the unity of the body of Christ was affirmed in the church just like it had been in Israel through their sacrificial system. And we need to understand that. And when you go back over to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, that's a spell because the Corinthian church was having a real problem with communion. Here's what he says to them. And this is very clear here in verse 17. Um, 10, where am I? In my old age, I have verse 17. I, and there's a lot before and after, but just this one verse. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of this one loaf. The loaf stands for the body of Christ. And the body of Christ today is the church. That's When you read the, the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians, that's absolutely crystal clear. And so he's saying here that, uh, that, the, that the communion service, it has that Old Testament background, is here to guarantee the unity of the body of Christ. You shouldn't take communion if you have ought against a brother or back and forth until you go, sit down, resolve it, then come back, take communion. Because if you do, if you do, you're in serious trouble with the Lord. Even though you may not know it, if you don't know the scripture, you better believe me, you're in serious trouble with the Lord. And the Bible is abundantly clear in the 11th chapter what that problem is. We'll talk to, about that under number four. Now let's move on and talk about the frequency of participation. The New Testament never says one time, on the first day of the week, every one of you should take communion. It was assumed. Acts 2.42 said when the church first began and the people cried, what do you want us to do when Peter had preached? He talked about baptism and then he talked in Acts 2.38 and then he comes down to the other part of it. He said, Here's the, here is the recipe for a healthy Christian individual. You continue consistently or persist in reading the New Testament. That's called the Apostles' Doctrine. In koinonia, that's the coming together in a non-threatening atmosphere where we are one in Christ and we can share our lives, our thoughts, our troubles, pray for one another, encourage each other, so on and so forth. So he said, you continue to read the, the Apostles' Doctrine, continue to have fellowship, break the bread, communion service, and pray. 
These are, those are, in Acts 2.42, spell out the essential ingredients for a healthy Christian life. It, it's very serious. And so the earliest, uh, the early church up until the Reformation never, never, never violated that. It was at the Reformation that those things were changed when they reacted to rather than searched the Scripture for what they should do. Eusebius, who was the first recognized and notable church historian, said, and I'll quote, From the beginning, the Christians assembled on the first day of the week, called by them the Lord's Day, to read Scriptures, to preach, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So that's the history of the church. In regard to the frequency, you might want to also reference the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. The Apostle, Doc, the Apostle Paul had been a preacher in the church at Ephesus. And you ever get to go there? That, the city of Ephesus has been beautifully restored. Um, they, you know, it, it, it's, it's worth taking a half a day to, to learn about it. He had been there longer than he'd been anyway. He was there for three years, and now he, he knows he's dying, so he turns the work over to Timothy. But he wants to talk to the, to the they had household churches, and the, and the guys who over the household churches were called pastors or elders, and so he called them together, and, and he talks to them here. And, uh, it, and when they came together on the Lord's Day, because it's very clear here, I think, that what's going on, uh, and, and, and if you go down to verse what seven, it says, "On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread." And as Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on preaching until midnight. And that's when Eutychus, the young guy you remember, fell out of the second story window and conked his head, and uh, that kind of interrupted the services there for a while. But he preached until midnight. I've never tried that. I have a friend who did. Old, old, old Brother Criswell at First Baptist Church, he's dead now, down in uh, Dallas, Texas, did that for several years on New Year's Eve. He would preach till midnight. He'd take a little break. Choir would sing. He'd just keep on preaching. I think they were glad when he was done. Anyway, with, with that behind us, the Scripture clearly assumes the Lord's Supper was the primary reason for gathering on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day. And we should not ever vary from that. Now let's talk about when we have it. Actually, Megan was listening last night. I was kind of proud of her. I said to the folks last night, we probably don't take enough time at the Lord's Supper to be able to do what the Scripture says we should do before we eat and before we drink. We probably need a little more time to meditate and to pray and to do some other things that I'll talk to you about in a second. And today I noticed she took a little bit more time. But if you don't have enough time, you need to let us know because we should not hurry through the Lord's Supper and make it a ritual because there's a danger that if you do something Often, it can become just a formality rather than a spiritual experience. And the Bible is very clear about that. 
you go back again now to first uh, to, to the church at, in Corinth, and they had all kinds of problems. They were fighting about who's more important because I was baptized by Paul, I was baptized by Peter, I'm better than you are. They had all kinds of idiotic stuff. And uh, that the, finally the Apostle Paul, and they even, at the, even started doing, see, they had this carrion dinner, and then they would eat the supper, and then at the end, and they even corrupted that to the extent that the Apostle Paul said, hey, look, this has got to stop. You guys eat your supper at home. We'll just come for the Lord's Supper. Here's the way it reads. And this is in the 10th chapter of the, um, of the book of, of uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, let me see where I want to start here. Let's just use verses 3 and 4, I guess, would be good. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from their spirit. They're talking about Israel here as an illustration to them. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered throughout because they, they didn't apprehend the presence of the Lord and, and obey him in doing the right thing. So what happened here was the child, is the is the church in Corinth had a horrible thing develop. Now this is over in the eleventh chapter. And here's when he got really firm with them. He said, "When you come together, when you birds get together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting on anybody else. This is the carrying supper." One remains hungry and the other gets drunk. This is at the church, yeah. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? So he said, I want this stopped. This is supposed to be a spiritual experience and we're going to keep it that way or you will answer to me, the Apostle Paul said. He made that abundantly clear. He said, so I want, I want you to do this in the right way. And that because here's what he tells us. Because if you don't, God will intervene and there will be serious repercussions. Serious repercussions. Listen to this in verse 27. Therefore, and you remember what the Apostle Paul, when he says therefore, he said, listen at least one ear. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And whenever there's judgment, there's to be a penalty. Now, what was the penalty? He goes ahead and say, that's why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have died. For if we judge ourselves, we would not come under God's judgment. So he was saying here, rest assured that if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, and here we're talking about several things. First, not recognizing the presence of the Lord. Secondly, not getting along with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't do that, you will be penalized by the Lord himself. Now, that being said, he was simply saying, here's what you have to do. You have to focus on the presence and the body and the blood of Christ and the cross before you eat and drink 
or you'll be guilty of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Now, it's time to wrap this whole thing up. So let me tell you about some interesting things that have happened historically in regard to the Lord's Supper. A few weeks ago, some of us went down to Cane Ridge, Kentucky. That's just a few miles out of Paris. And while we were there at Cane Ridge, we remembered that it was a celebration of years ago on Communion Sunday for the Presbyterian Church. The preacher there at that little church was a guy named Barton W. Stone. And sir, other Presbyterian churches in the area agreed that they should have their communion together on this particular weekend. So several hundred people gathered there at Cane Ridge. And they began to preach. And they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And more people of the neighborhood started coming in. Several thousand, up to 20,000 people gathered there and started a movement in the United States that was referred to as one of the two or three great spiritual awakenings in our country. And it started on Communion Sunday. When people examined themselves and saw that they were far away from what the Lord required. And those churches that gathered there then committed to get back to the Bible and have communion every Sunday. In my own family, during the Civil War, the Rawlingses had fought in the, uh, in the, in the Revolutionary War, and the country had no money to pay them as soldiers, and so they gave them land in Kentucky. Woodford County, they had a farm there outside of Lexington. And when the Civil War came along, my grandpa was just a little boy. He was born in 1856. His dad and several of his uncles fought for the Confederacy. One of the uncles fought for the Union. Kentucky was a border state and then often split families. And the guy that fought for the Union moved up here somewhere close to Chillicothe, between Chillicothe and Hannah Farm, between Chillicothe and, uh, and the next burg up there, north of there. So, many years later, in the, and the Grandpa said it was in the, in the 1870s, the family had a reunion back in Lexington. And the, uh, and the, the, the fellow who came, uh, the, the, his uncle, Grandpa's uncle, that had fought for the Union, he and his wife and children came. And in many of those churches after the war, those who fought for the Union would sit on one side. Those who fought for the Confederacy would sit on the other. It just didn't go away overnight. But in this particular case, an uncle, one of his uncles named Robert Rawlings, walked across the aisle got down on his knees and begged for forgiveness and hugged the uncle that fought for the union. The other brothers followed. And that whole church came together at the communion service and brought them back together where they had been hating each other before then. The communion is a time that can perform miraculous things in the hearts of believers 
in the congregation of the believers, in keeping us in a position where we do one thing that's more important than anything else, that we love each other. And love isn't a warm, fuzzy feeling. Love is how we treat each other. Keeps down harsh words. Soft words turn away wrath, the Bible says. And any time that you have speak harshly to someone else as a brother or sister in Christ before you take communion, you should go to that person, seek forgiveness, and seek unity. Because a church that is unified can sing together, can pray together, and through the power of the Holy Spirit can change a whole community. It's happened before. And right now, it needs to happen for our whole country. I hope you understand that. It's a serious issue. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you gave us the mechanism through whom we can be restored in relationships to you and to each other through a humble, repentant heart. Give us, I pray, O oh God, a commitment to be present and to learn to take communion as we've been taught and, and to avoid unworthiness. Teach us to love one another above all other things through the power of your Holy Spirit. Bless this gathering people here this morning. Bless our country. Bless our community. Help us to seek and to find favor in your eyes. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.